The Gospel writer does not specify what time of year Jesus visited this region of Tyre and Sidon, two Gentile towns on the seacoast. This is modern-day Lebanon. If it was August when he was visiting, it was probably hot, like it is here in Portland. And certainly tensions are high as Jesus and his disciples are making their way through this particular district. They're, they're outside of their home territory, the safely Jewish region around the Sea of Galilee where Jesus has done most of his teaching and preaching up to this point. This is Gentile territory, Tyre and Sidon, right? This is pagan territory. He's outside of his, his comfortable little bubble of people who look and speak and think and behave like he does. And he encounters this woman. Matthew calls her a Canaanite woman. Elsewhere in the New Testament, she's described as a, a woman of Syrophoenician origins. In other words, she is not like him. Possibly her skin is a different color than his. Certainly her customs and her religion, her experience of the world, her culture, and her people are foreign to him. This is perhaps the first time in his life, certainly in his adult life, that Jesus encounters somebody whose race is different from his own. And when when she demands something of him, he at first is threatened, right? This woman is not my problem, he tells his disciples. I have been sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she confronts him, which is a gutsy thing for a woman to do in the first century. She says, Lord, help me. And a second time, Jesus denies her, right? He refuses to hear her request. And this time he uses this, this kind of casual ethnic slur that he may well have heard Growing up, you know, heard around the campfire, on the playground, in the first century version of the locker room, right? He said, it's, it's not right to take food meant for children and feed it to puppies. Literally, that's what, he, that's what he says to her. And this term that he uses, puppies, most scholars think, was a, was a pretty damaging first century ethnic slur. It's a term that is meant to shut her up and to shame her into silence. And nevertheless, she persisted like so many women in the ancient world and so many women today who are demeaned and belittled and otherwise dismissed by powerful men, this Canaanite woman persists. She will not back down. She refuses to be silenced. And she turns the tables on Jesus. She shows that she has wit and understanding and a, and a pretty first-rate theological imagination. She says, Lord, even the, even the so-called puppies get to eat what falls from the master's table. This is, a, this is a pretty hard story, actually. Commenta commenters over the, over the centuries have really bent over backwards to defend and justify and explain, otherwise make excuses for Jesus' egregiously racist behavior towards this woman. Sometimes we say, well, he's, he's testing her faith. That's usually the way the Christian commentators have made sense of the story. He's, a, you know, he's the sinless son of God, right? He, he cannot possibly simply be unintentionally cruel and prejudiced, right? It's impossible for us to think about Jesus being racist, right? What would it mean for Christianity if we discover that the sinless Son of God was racist? What's fascinating to me is that the writers of the Gospels preserved this story even though it makes their hero look pretty bad. And that's actually one important criterion, it's called the, the criterion of embarrassment, that causes many scholars to think that this story is actually more likely to be based in historical fact 
than some of the other sayings of Jesus that seem to maybe reflect a later era or tradition. If you're writing a story about how great Jesus is, the thinking goes, you're going to want to suppress any story that shows him in a, in a negative light. So either everybody knows that this really happened and you can't leave it out, or, the thinking goes, maybe the writers of these texts understood that this story illustrates something so important about Jesus and about Christianity that to leave it out would leave the larger story incomplete. Maybe these writers knew something about Jesus that later commentators have missed. I was sitting in a forum a couple years ago. It was the, in the wake of the protests in Ferguson, Missouri, following the shooting of Michael Brown. And Jim Wallace of Sojourners was here in Portland, actually, speaking on the topic of racism as America's original sin. He collected a group of local clergy and activists to talk about the reality of racism in Portland, how it can be dealt with spiritually. And one of the women who spoke was a leader of Portland's Black Lives Matter movement, and her words have stayed with me since I heard her speak them four years ago. She says, I was born in Harlem. She said, I'd lived, I've lived in Mississippi and Georgia. I've lived all over the South, all over the East Coast, Seattle, Los Angeles. She says, I have never lived in a more racist city than Portland, Oregon. And she said, that's because people here think that they're these progressive, enlightened white people. And she said, in my experience, nobody is more racist than a well-meaning white liberal. This woman described racism not just in the big overt things, right, the Confederate flags in courthouses or crosses burning on lawns. She described a far more subtle pattern, often unintentional, but all the more insidious because of its subtlety. She says, it usually starts with jokes about my hair. It's a pattern, she says, of, of microaggressions, these subtle treatments that quietly but effectively serve to put distance between people of different races, people of different genders, different sexual orientations and gender identities. And I have to tell you, I have heard parishioners and visitors to Trinity Episcopal Cathedral describe that as happening here, probably a lot more frequently than many of us would like to think. I had a, a message on my office line uh, back in January from a, a guy that I'd gotten to know. I'd actually done a house blessing for him and for his partner. And they'd been attending Trinity off, off and on after moving up to Portland from California. He and his partner sought out the cathedral because they, were, they had been members of the Episcopal Cathedral down in San Diego. So they knew our liturgy, they knew our hymns, they loved the Episcopal Church. One member of this couple was white, the other one had dark skin. And eventually they stopped coming. He said, when I finally had a chance to talk with him, he said it was just too many little incidences, these well-coiffed ladies hugging their purses a little bit closer when they pass me, even while they're giving me a big smile, or being stopped at the door once too often and asked very politely what I was doing here. Actually, the reason he reached out to me was to tell me about an incident that happened to him back in December when he came by the cathedral to say a prayer in our chapel because his grandmother was, was close to death. And so he buzzed in at the front door buzzer, and he relayed his request to the volunteer at the desk. And she said, oh, I'm so sorry, the cathedral is only open for members during the week. My friend explained to her that he was, in fact, a member of the cathedral. And she said, oh, you are? And the front desk volunteer seemed surprised. She came to the door, he thought, to like check him out in person before she let him in. And even then, he said, he was subjected to this series of polite but suspicious questions, right? It felt to him like kind of getting the third degree before he was finally admitted. And he said it was kind of like the straw that broke the camel's back. He said it was clear to me that so many people's hearts are in the right place at Trinity, and you all just don't understand how exhausting it is to be a person of color in your congregation. 
He said, eventually, I just gave up. That story landed hard with me when I heard it. I thought about it again a couple weeks ago when I was personally called out for my own uh, words and behavior. I got really excited initially when uh, I heard this message on my cell phone from the legendary civil rights activist, Dr. Ruby Sales. Julie McRae Goldsmith, our former canon for Cathedral Life, had put Dr. Sales in touch with us here because Dr. Sales wanted to talk to somebody in Portland about all these protests that were happening. For those of you who don't know who Ruby Sales is, she's a kind of a legend in the civil rights movement. She was the 17-year-old activist who was standing right next to the Episcopal seminarian, Jonathan Daniels, outside that grocery store in Hainesville, Alabama, when a county deputy drew a gun on her. Daniels pushed Ruby Sales out of the way. He saved her life, but he took the bullet. He died instantly. And Ruby Sales was so traumatized by the event that she wasn't able to speak for months. But despite death threats to her family and to herself, she did eventually testify against the man who had shot Jonathan Daniels at his trial. And she went on to study at Episcopal Divinity School in Cambridge. She's worked for decades as a human rights, civil rights activist around the country. So when I heard Dr. Ruby Sales' voice on my phone, I got pretty excited, right? This woman is a living legend. And so we talked. She asked, what's happening in Portland? What are you seeing? She asked how we were experiencing the protests and the, the subsequent pushback from federal and local officers. And I, I talked about some of what I'd been seeing at the protests and the movement. And at one point in our conversation, I made a, a kind of a casual remark about some of the tensions that I had been sort of picking up on among some of the older black leaders in Portland and some of these younger BLM activists. And Dr. Stales stopped me on the phone conversation. She said, I just, I just, need, you, I just need you to know that oftentimes white people talk about tensions in the leadership of the movement as a tool for dividing us. And she said, you do these young leaders a real disservice when you try to cut them off from their roots. And I was a little like, I was kind of taken aback, right? I sort of, I thought to myself like, is Dr. Ruby Sales accusing me of being a racist? And I got kind of huffy, right? I got kind of high and mighty, right? I said, I'm just, I'm just describing what I'm seeing on the ground. I mean, you called me, right? Like, I thought to myself, like, you don't even know me. We've been talking for five minutes. Like, how dare you accuse me of this? And like her spiritual ancestor, the Canaanite woman in Matthew's gospel, Dr. Sales persisted. For most of the rest of the call, she spoke and I listened. Begrudgingly, at first, right? I kind of I shut up. I wasn't sure that I liked this woman who had called me out. I wanted to say, like, you don't even understand me. You don't even know who I am. But of course, she did understand me. She knew who I was. We spoke for about an hour. At the end of the call, she said, Nathan, you got pretty defensive with me earlier on when I called you out on some of the language that you were using. I just got to tell you, she said, one of the things that I find so frustrating sometimes working with white people in the movement is that you all are so anxious to get it right. And when you, when you mess up, you go on the defensive so quickly. She said, it really gets in the way of the work. She said, I offer that to you as feedback, one child of God to another. That conviction has, has sat with me. I've been thinking about that conversation for weeks. It was not Ruby Sales' job to teach me a lesson, right? It was not our former parishioner's job to call me up and tell us about his experience at Trinity. It is not any black person's job to teach any white person anything. But we can choose to pay attention. We can choose to listen. And we can choose to behave differently. This story about Jesus and the Canaanite woman 
It shows up in, in, in slightly different versions in all three of the so-called synoptic gospels. I suggest to you that this story might be one of the most important stories in the New Testament. Because it's a story that asks me to confront not just a Jesus who is racist. More importantly, it asks me to consider a Jesus who is confronted by a woman who persists. I suspect that the reason that our ancestors preserved this kind of embarrassing story about their leader is that somehow they knew that subsequent generations of followers would need a savior who could show us how to fail and how to grow. Jesus comes into the story as a, a deeply racist kid, formed by the suspicions and the fears he learned as a child at his mother's knee. And when his words and his actions are called out, when he's confronted with an actual flesh and blood person, a suffering person who belongs to a group that he has learned to dismiss as puppies, then he begins this slow journey, not just towards changing his actions, but a journey towards a change of heart. This story gives me a Jesus who is able to confront the, the fear of difference that lies deep inside him, all the ways in which, as the lyricist Oscar Hammerstein famously said, he has been carefully taught. Right? Hammerstein wrote, you've got to be taught to hate and fear. You've got to be taught from year to year. It's got to be drummed in your dear little ear. You've got to be carefully taught. And that's what it means to grow up in America. You and I were carefully taught in a thousand subtle, tiny, insidious ways. And the journey of unlearning that careful teaching is not a one-time thing. It's a lifelong process. My friend Keith sometimes says, you know, we are all of us. As white people, we're all recovering racists. Dr. Sales speaks of that journey as a spiritual journey. She says it's maybe the most important spiritual work that white people can take on, a journey alongside Jesus of unlearning our fears and our violence, the, the privilege and assumptions that lie deep down each side, inside each one of us, the ways our world has, has carefully taught us how to be white. And there's these hateful words that we don't even know that we know. There's behaviors and responses that feel instinctive to us. There's these little jokes that we make. There's the defensiveness that we carry. There's all the ways that we deflect our nervousness, our anxiousness, our fear, apologize, feel guilty. It's, it's spiritual work to overcome this stuff because you and I have been formed by a racist society and it will take every ounce of strength and courage and compassion we have to reform ourselves in the image of the kingdom of God. And we start with Jesus. Not because he's the perfect, sinless son of God, because he's got it all figured out. We start with Jesus because he's so much like us. I think that's actually the part that's hardest for us. The divinity of Jesus is pretty easy, right? That puts him on a shelf. He's over there. He's a stained glass son of God who never really has to get his hands dirty and enter my daily reality. It's when Jesus holds up a mirror for me, kind of an ugly mirror in which I recognize myself a little bit too well, that's when he makes me uncomfortable. If Jesus is just as complicit and complicated in his racial identity, this deep-level training he's received, if Jesus was just as carefully taught as I have been, then I'm not off the hook anymore. And in a weird way, 
a racist Jesus, while harder to bear, is maybe a Jesus who can save me. Because he shows me this different way, the, the grace of being confronted and the courage of being able to change. The Jesus who heads home at the end of this story is a different person than the Jesus who shows up in Tyre and Sidon. The spiritual journey that this Canaanite woman's words inspire in him takes him into the most dangerous places of empire and I think into the deepest places of his own heart. And like Jesus, I too can choose that journey. I can take a step back from the instinctive defensiveness that crops up in me when I am called on my bullshit. I can learn to listen carefully when the effects of my words and actions are gently, or not so gently, pointed out to me. I can learn to take a deep breath. I can learn to apologize. And I can commit to doing better, to keep going. There is salvation on offer for us. It comes when we shut up and step up and let ourselves be led by somebody else. The grace of, of unlearning my whiteness means being willing to sign on to somebody else's agenda and learning how to make that agenda my agenda. Because as Dr. Sales reminded me, white supremacy damages everybody, right? White people have been hurt by this stuff. We diligent, defensive, progressive, racist white people. It turns out we do have to be carefully taught. We have to be carefully taught to fear those who are different. And we have to be even more carefully taught if we want to change.